worship team for leading us this morning. I don't know about you, but when I walked in the auditorium first thing this morning, I noticed the decorations at the front, and I don't know how that happens. I literally don't know how it happens, but would you help me in thanking those who are responsible for decorating the front of the church? Looks absolutely beautiful. Thank you. Good morning. Please turn with me to, once again, the Gospel according to John. We find the life and ministry of Jesus Christ described for us. John begins his gospel by articulating one of the most definitive theological explanations in all of Scripture. It truly is a profound explanation. We cannot walk away from those first 18 verses without knowing that John is absolutely convinced that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. In John's mind, Jesus is no less than than God dressed in human flesh. And according to John chapter 20, verse 31, John wrote this gospel to persuade us so that you and I will be just as convinced as he is that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. The second half of chapter 1 The Apostle John calls on eyewitnesses from those early days of Jesus' earthly ministry. First and foremost is John the Baptist. And then Andrew, Simon Peter. Jesus approaches Philip and Philip goes and gets Nathaniel. All five eyewitness testimonies supporting the deity of Jesus Christ. And then at the beginning of chapter 2, we find Jesus and his disciples attending a wedding in the town of Cana of Galilee. And Jesus literally saves the day, or at least saves the wedding ceremony, by turning water into wine. And we noted specifically that in supplying this abundance of the best wine, Jesus used six stone water pots that were there for the purpose of ceremonial cleansing. Those six water pots were significant symbols of Judaism. That is, until they became wine vats. And they signaled that Jesus' life and ministry was about to transform Judaism in some significant ways. This was the first of seven signs included in John's Gospel that served to reveal Jesus' true identity, God dressed in human flesh. In fact, in verse 11 of chapter 2, we read, This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed him. From Cana, Jesus traveled the 20 miles to the northeast to Capernaum. They stayed there a few days and then left for Jerusalem, 85 miles to the south. Like all good Jewish men, Jesus had planned to participate in the Passover celebrations at the temple in Jerusalem. But when they arrived at the temple, Jesus was confronted with a problem. He immediately took action and addressed the problem and provided a solution. 
But that action that had been taken required an explanation. A problem, a solution, and an explanation. However, it was not until after his resurrection that the the full meaning of that um, explanation was understood. And even then, only by his disciples. Notice verse 22. So when Jesus was raised from the dead... His disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word which Jesus had spoken. And that brings us to the three verses that we want to focus on this morning. Just three verses. So, early dismissal today. Don't hold your breath. I'm making no promises. John chapter 2, verses 23 to 25 provide a transitional bridge, a literary transitional bridge, from the temple cleansing episode to Jesus' conversation. And notice chapter 3, verse 1, a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. But in these three short verses... John provides us with a significant clarification of what it means to believe in him. And so if you have a copy of the scriptures with you this morning, I'd invite you to stand with me as I read from John chapter 2, beginning at verse 12. After this, he went down to Capernaum. He and his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there a few days. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word which, which Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. You may be seated. Father, we agree with your word 
this morning when it claims all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Help us to be teachable, responsive to your rebuke, open to your correction, persevering and enduring in the training that righteous living requires. Keep us from being lazy or apathetic or longing for ease and comfort. Equip us, we pray, so that we might fight the good fight, winning both internal and external battles. By your power and for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Approaching this passage, the scripture this morning, I am tempted to say that we have good news and bad news. Which would you like to hear first? Look at me again with the, at these three verses. At the end of chapter 2, so verse 23, you might want to begin by circling two words in your Bible. Believed in verse 23, and then entrusting in verse 24. Those two words actually share the same common Greek word, pisteo. It means to trust, to believe, to put faith in. In verses 23 and 24, actually the first one is in the aorist tense. The second one is in the imperfect tense. And we'll come back to that in a few moments. But that's a significant distinction. You might also want to underline at the beginning of verse 24, that little conjunction, but. It separates the, the good news from the bad news. The good news is found in verse 23. Many believed in his name. Many pestaoed in his name. Yay! Break out the party balloons. Time to celebrate, right? Remember, John chapter 1, verse 12. But as many as received him, to them gave he the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. But, that little conjunction at the beginning of verse 24 should find us reaching for the pause button on our celebration of ministry success. I wonder how many times, I wonder how many times we've rushed off to celebrate and Jesus was not entrusting his heart to them or himself to them. Celebrations for those who have believed in his name can be premature. So the bad news is that Jesus was not entrusting himself to them. Not bestowing 
himself to them. On the one hand, we have many who believe in his name. On the other hand, we have Jesus not entrusting himself to them. The people trusted in his name, but Jesus did not entrust himself to them. Or to state it plainly, Jesus did not believe those who had believed in him. Interesting. Celebrations for those who have believed in his name can be premature. And there are two reasons given in this passage of Scripture for why Jesus did not entrust himself to those who had believed in his name. The first reason why Jesus did not entrust himself to those who believed in his name was because of the basis of their belief. Let's read again, verses 23 and 24. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. So I mentioned earlier that first Greek word translated believed is in the aorist tense. In the aorist tense, in the indicative mood, indicates an action that has taken place in the past. So in this context, they believed in his name, past tense, as a result of the signs that they were able to observe him doing. In other words, as long as they were able to observe Jesus doing his signs, they were believing. They believed. So that implies actually two things. Number one, they needed to be able to continue observing. And number two, that Jesus needed to continue doing what he was doing. Take either one of those away, either one of those requirements for their belief, and who knows? What were these signs? A couple of weeks ago, when we studied those first 11 verses of John chapter 2, we saw that Jesus performed his first sign. In fact, I read it earlier, chapter 2, verse 11 reads, This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed him. Remember that we learned the the Apostle John loved to use, in fact, he preferred to use the word when Jesus manifested his glory, not miracles, but signs. John chose to emphasize the revelatory nature of these supernatural expressions of power rather than just focusing on the power. As signs, they revealed some aspect of Jesus' deity, like road signs that help us to find our way to a geographic location. These signs were intended to help us to discover Jesus' deity, the fact that he was God-dressed in human flesh. These signs were never intended to be an end in and of themselves. 
The Apostle John includes seven such signs in this account of the ministry and life of Jesus. Chapter 2, we saw the changing of water into wine. Chapter 4, the healing of a royal official's son in Capernaum. Chapter 5, the healing of a paralytic at Bethsaida. Chapter 6, we find the feeding of the 5,000. And later in that same chapter, Jesus actually walks on the Sea of Galilee. Chapter 9, the healing of the man born blind. Chapter 11, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. But here at the end of chapter 2, John gives no indication of what, what kinds of signs Jesus was actually doing during that week following the Passover. Probably they were healings, physical healings, maybe even the casting out of demonic activity. Regardless of the packaging, these manifestations of his glory involved displays of power that clearly indicated that this man was not an ordinary man. So the basis of their faith, of their belief in him was limited to what he was able to do, to these supernatural performances, or maybe more accurately, what he was doing. And so we could label these people as having an experiential belief. It's an experience-based faith. This belief was dependent on Jesus continuing to perform the signs that he was doing. Historically, we have all kinds of examples of how this experiential faith often plays out. In fact, probably the most classic example in my mind is related to the festival that brought Jesus to the city of Jerusalem in the first place the Passover. You'll remember it all began when Moses heard a voice from a burning bush while tending sheep on the backside of a desert. He was directed by God to return to Egypt and somehow to lead the Israelites out from underneath Egyptian oppressive slavery. Of course, the the ruler of Egypt The Pharaoh was not interested in allowing these Israeli slaves to walk out. And so what was it? Was it ten plagues? I think ten plagues and a miraculous crossing through the Red Sea on dry land before the Israel was able to escape the Egyptians. I said ten plagues and a miraculous escape through the sea, Red Sea on dry land. Now you would think that those undeniable supernatural displays of power would be good for a lifetime, at least, maybe even beyond. But you know the rest of the story. Keith Green's song captures it in this way. So you want to go back to Egypt where it's warm and secure. Are sorry you brought bought the one-way ticket when you thought you were sure. You wanted to live in the land of promise, but now it's getting so hard. 
Are you sorry you're out here in the desert instead of your own backyard? Well, there's nothing to do but travel, and we sure travel a lot. Because it's hard to keep your feet from moving when the sands got so hot. And in the morning, it's manna hotcakes. We snack on manna all day. And we sure had a winner last night for dinner. Flaming manna souffle. And the song goes on. Great song. But listen as I read from Exodus chapter 16, verses 1 to 3. This is sobering. When the whole community of Israel set out from Elam and journeyed into the wilderness, so they're leaving the shores of the Red Sea, into the wilderness of sin between Elam and Mount Sinai, they arrived there on the 15th day of the second month. One month after leaving the land of Egypt. One month. There too, the whole community of Israel complained about Moses and Aaron. If only the Lord had killed us back in Egypt, they moaned. There we sat around pots filled with meat and ate all the bread we wanted. But now you have brought us out into this wilderness to starve to death. One month later. And that, my friends, is where experiential base belief leads us. Or leaves us. And Jesus knew that. And because he knew that, He did not entrust himself to them. Jesus tells a parable that is recorded for us in Mark chapter 4. It's also found in Matthew chapter 13 and Luke chapter 8 that consists of a similar warning. You may want to turn there. Mark chapter 4. For years, we've heard it titled as the, the parable of the sower. But really, it's a, it's a parable about the seed, right? Begins in verse 3 of Mark chapter 4. Listen to this. Jesus is speaking. Behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he was sowing, some seed fell beside the road. And then verse 5, and other seed fell on the rocky ground. And verse 7, other seed fell among the thorns. And verse 8, other seed fell into good soil. Now drop down to verse 13. And he said to them, this is to his disciples, do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all parables? The sower sows the word. And then go down to verse 16. In a similar way, these are the ones on whom the seed was sown on the rocky places, who when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then, when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. Like the seed which 
represented the word in this parable. Jesus' signs were a revelation of God. Like the seeds sown in rocky places, people who believed in Jesus while observing what he was doing, but when persecution or affliction arose or or when he stopped doing them or when he left town, these folks in John chapter 2 believed in his name only as a miracle worker. As long as he was doing miracles, they believed in his name. When the miracles stopped, and therein lies the problem, with an experiential base belief. It's not fake news, but it is or could be fake belief or fake faith. And Jesus would not entrust himself to them. Celebrations for those who have believed in his name can be premature. And Jesus did not entrust himself to those who believed in his name because of the basis of their faith or belief. And secondly, Jesus did not entrust himself to those who believed in his name because of his knowledge of humanity. Notice verse 24, John chapter 2. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Notice that last phrase in verse 24. For he knew all men. Jesus Knowledge of humanity is an inclusive knowledge. He knows all men. There are no exceptions to his knowledge of mankind. Jesus knows that we have all been created in the image of God. Genesis chapter 1 verse 26. He knows that all of us, from God's perspective, are to be considered of great worth. That's the whole point of those parables in Luke chapter 15. The lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son, or the prodigal son. In each case, that which was lost was considered to be of great value. And Jesus knew that all have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 There are no exceptions. Every single one of us are born incapable of living up to the standard of perfection that God requires for relationship with Him. Psalm 51 verse 5 reads, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin... My mother conceived me. Now the psalmist is not suggesting that his mother became pregnant because of inappropriate relationships. That's not what he's suggesting. What he is acknowledging though is that our sin is inherent in our humanity. 
We don't become sinners. We are born sinners. It is attached to our humanity. And Jesus knew that. Notice that Jesus' knowledge of humanity is a personal knowledge. If you read on in verse 24. Sorry, verse 25. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man. Unlike us, when it comes to Jesus' deity, we needed John's testimony. We needed to hear from Andrew and from Simon Peter and from Philip and from Nathaniel. But Jesus doesn't need anyone to come and testify concerning humanity. He knows us through and through, in fact, maybe even better than we know ourselves. John chapter 1 verse 3 claims all things, and in that we could include humanity, all things including humanity came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. The Creator would have a personal knowledge of His creation. And finally, Jesus' knowledge of humanity includes matters of the heart. For He Himself knows what was in man. Do you know what's in you? I want us to look quickly at three passages of Scripture. I'll give very little commentary, but I want us to hear the Word of God. And so turn with me first to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 17. Jeremiah chapter 17. Let's look at verse 9. Verse 9 of chapter 17. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, Search the heart. I test the mind. Even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the result of his deeds. You may want to underline verse 9 of Jeremiah chapter 17. Then flip over with me to Psalm 53. Psalm 53, beginning at verse 1. The fool, and that's not mental, but a a moral moron is what he's talking about here. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and have committed 
abominable injustice. There is no one who does good. God has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there is anyone who understands, who seeks after God. Every one of them has turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Flip back with me. Let's go into the New Testament because that's all Old Testament. We're probably better than that. Let's go to the New Testament. John chapter 7. Jesus again is speaking. Those Old Testament characters, they're a bunch of reprobates. But how about us? New Testament. This side of the cross. Let's begin at verse 14 of Mark chapter 7. After he called the crowd to him again, he began saying to them, listen to me, all of you, and understand. And there's been a debate going on about cleansing and impure hands. And remember those um, vats that were at the wedding? Ceremonial washing. So that has been the debate. And so Jesus, listen to me, all, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him. But the things which proceed out of a man are what defiled the man. Verse 17. When he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples questioned him about the parable. And he said to them, Are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into a man from the outside cannot defile him? Because it, it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he was saying, that which proceeds out of the man is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. And that is not an all-inclusive list. That's not exhaustive. It's representative. Notice verse 23. All these evil things proceed from within out of a depraved heart and defile the man. It's not a pretty picture. And theologically, the term is the total depravity of man. And that does not suggest that any one of us are as bad as we can possibly be. But what it does teach is that this sin that is inherent in every one of us has completely permeated us, contaminated us, polluted us in every way, shape, and form. All of us from the inside out. You see, Jesus being God dressed in human flesh, he knew what was in man. A deceitful and desperately wicked heart. Jesus' knowledge of humanity kept him from entrusting himself to them, to those who believed in his name. Celebrations of those who have believed in his name can be premature. Folks, 
this is a sobering message. I realize that. One that our brand of evangelicalism definitely needs to hear and to heed. I am a product of the four spiritual laws, bridge to life, pray this prayer of salvation era. And I'm certainly not condemning those well-intentioned methodologies. But what I want us to do, I want us to ask questions, tough questions, rather than blindly promote the inventions of previous generations, especially in light of God's word. One thing that I do know, that many of my friends who believed in his name have fallen away. And that's sad. My intention is not to undermine any of your assurance of salvation. That's not my intention. But at the same time, I I don't want us to treat these three verses at the end of Mark chapter 2 as throwaway verses. Just a, a literary bridge from one story to the next. I'm thinking that there are some important implications in these verses. Implications that for any who would believe in his name. I mentioned earlier the, the different tenses used for the word Greek word pisteo. In the first one, it was the aorist tense and translated believed. In verse 24, it is the imperfect tense and translated entrusting. The aorist tense represents action that has taken place in the past. The imperfect tense in New Testament Greek, represents continual or repeated action. For example, a present tense would be they are asking. To put that in the imperfect tense would be they kept on asking. Sorry for the Sunday morning, early morning grammar lesson, but do you see the implications here? You see the implications for Those who believe. The imperfect tense represents a belief that had a a definite starting point in the past, but is continuing to this very day. You see, the signs or personal encounters with God, they can be used by God to get our attention, but they are never intended to be an end in and of themselves. They are never intended to become the foundation of our faith. I have a confession to make. Cynthia and I were blessed with three sons that we deeply value. As parents, and you need to hear, like I need to say this for my sake. You probably are well aware of this, but, but we were far from perfect parents. But as parents, we were never interested in sharing the sinner's prayer with our sons or getting them to pray that prayer. 
Instead, our strategy was to teach them the Word of God and help them to learn how to read the Word of God for themselves, believing that they would discover God of the Bible and he would help them to respond appropriately at the appropriate time. I wish I could say that it was an easy road. And I wish that God had answered our prayers sooner than he did. But regardless of our personal experience, our conviction has not changed. Share the gospel and leave the results with God. Believing in his name needs to be an imperfect tense experience. It involves a definite act in the past, but it needs to continue for the rest of our lives. They keep on believing in his name, even after the miracle stopped and Jesus leaves town. So the question becomes, in whom or what? Are you trusting? Please continue to reflect on this passage of Scripture over the next few days. I think there's much here. Let me just suggest just three things for food for thought. Number one, accept our total depravity. We need to embrace that. You and I bring nothing to the table. Nothing. Well, that's not exactly true. Sorry. We bring a deceptive, depraved heart to the table. That's what we bring. That's all we bring. But hear these words of hope from from Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel. I love this verse. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And give you a heart of flesh. And all God's people said, Amen. Let it be so, please, Lord. Listen as I read from Luke chapter 7. Then Jesus told them this story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces of silver to another. But neither of them could repay him. So he kindly forgave them, both canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. That's right, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you did not offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I first came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love, but a person who is forgiven little shows only little love. Don't be afraid to embrace your depravity.
Secondly, know the gospel. Tyler read these verses for us last week in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The Apostle Paul is writing and he says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I deliver to you as the, as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Know the gospel, both intellectually and personally. Thirdly, celebrate appropriately. Be sure, be sure of your salvation and the salvation of others. Stop making excuses or banking on past performances or decisions. Are you continuing to trust Jesus Christ alone for your salvation? There are only two legitimate sources where we can find assurance for our salvation. One is internal, the other is external. Externally, our assurance is rooted in the explicit teachings of the written word of God. And I'm sure I shared with you on previous occasions the anchor for my soul that I discovered back in 1976. 1 John chapter 5, verse 11 and 12. And this is the record or And this is a testimony that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. He who has the son has life. And he who does not have the son of God does not have life. It's a kind of a line in the sand, wouldn't you say? It's either or. These things, verse 13, I have written to you that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may believe in the name of the son of God. Externally, It's the inscripturated words of God himself. Internally, it's the spirit of God. Romans chapter 8, verse 16 reads, The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. Celebrations of those who have believed in his names can be be premature, but they don't need to be. Accept the doctrine of total depravity. Know the gospel. Celebrate appropriately. How many of you heard of that um, radio personality by the name of Paul Harvey? I'm probably dating myself. Anybody know Paul Harvey? Hey, lots of people. Great. His programs were broadcasted Monday through Friday from 1952 to 2008 and reached as many as 24 million people on a weekly basis. His stories represented little-known or forgotten facts on a variety of subjects with some key element of the story withheld until the very end. And then he would reveal what that hidden personality, usually somebody that was well-known or a fact that, that you would know immediately. 
But he would always end after he disclosed that little tidbit. And now you know the rest of the story. And that's what these three verses have offered us this morning. When it comes to believing in his name. And now you know the rest of the story. Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Indeed, at the Rock Community Church, yes, Lord, in our lives, both collectively and individually, may your will be done as it is in heaven. Help us to be responsive students of your word, eager, teachable, always ready to say yes. Plant in us a love for the truth. Give us courage and endurance to fight our inherent desires to rebel, to live independent of your leadership and accountability. Thank you for Jesus, our Savior, our Redeemer, Lord of all, and our source of hope. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.